Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 26th of January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use has delivered its final report. It makes 36 recommendations on how drug usage should be dealt with by this state. And now it's up to the government to act. My view, uh, drug use and misuse by, by individuals uh, should be seen. Uh, primarily as a public health issue and not a criminal justice matter. Um, but that is very different from drug dealing, for example, um, and, uh, and the production uh, of, of illegal medicines and, and drugs. Uh, and I certainly think that shaming people and blaming people and criminalising people uh, isn't an effective policy and has largely been rejected by the public, particularly younger people. Um, and if it was the case that that approach and the war on drugs and just say no was a successful policy, it would have been successful 40 years ago. And it hasn't worked. Uh, and I think uh, we all need to uh, admit that. And certainly that's what the Citizens' Assembly um, admitted uh, in its report. That's the Taoiseach Leo Ranker speaking in the Dáil on Wednesday. The Citizens' Assembly has recommended that all drugs will be decriminalised. That's what the Taoiseach wants. That's what Gino Kenny, People Before Profit TD, wants. Indeed, the Taoiseach was responding to you there in that clip that we heard a moment ago, Gino. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I think these are the recommendations that you were hoping hoping for at a minimum. Yeah, um, Michael, um, I think it's it was a momentous day yesterday in relation to the findings from the Citizens' Assembly. And I think that generally reflects kind of um, the rejection of, you know, what we've had in the last six decades in this country where essentially people are being criminalised, you know, sent to prison and so forth for for drug use. Now, that clearly doesn't work. We've seen other jurisdictions where it doesn't work. So um, the most important thing of the report is that it's implemented. Um, and obviously the the number of rec- the recommendations, in, you know, recommend, you know, non-legislative um, changes yeah. and also legislative changes, which but, is very, very important. But the report's failing, if there is a failing, is that nobody knows the answer yet as to what implementing it means because we're not talking about legalising drugs. Drugs will no. still be illegal. If people are, are found with certain amounts of drugs, uh, they'll be prosecuted, possibly imprisoned, uh, but others won't because it'll be considered to be so small an amount that it was only for personal use. But where does the line start and end there? Well, that's up to legislators, Michael. And obviously, the minister has stated that you know a special directors committee will be set up as soon as possible to examine the findings, and then hopefully to legislate 
uh, in relation to changing uh, and amending the Misuse of Drugs Act to reflect, you know, that model of decriminalisation. And that's, again, that is up to legislators to see how that's teased out. Mm. What are your um, thoughts on it? Well, I mean, what do you think is a, a reasonable uh, amount? Uh, and obviously, uh, you'd be talking about different amounts for different drugs, I take it. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify, Michael, because obviously all the drugs that are Class A or Class B drugs have to be quantified. And obviously, for personal possession and personal amounts. So that has to be quantified via legislation. Um, and that has to be teased out. Now, there are kind of... Um, drawbacks in relation to decriminalization right and i've said this on your program before i think it's a it's a better model than we have at this moment in time but it doesn't really kind of tackle and challenge the elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is that even if you have decriminalization tomorrow which is a better system the illicit market is still controlled by the by the uh, by kind of the criminal black market yeah. And that's why I have a I have a big issue with that. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I think it's only a few weeks ago, isn't it, uh, that uh, there was a shortage of heroin in the country, so they concocted mm. some formula and called it heroin, uh, so, yeah. sold it on the streets, and so many people ended up overdosing as a result of the stuff that they were putting in it. I mean, heroin, yeah. heroin in itself is nothing to be sneezed at, uh, but this no. was obviously a, a lot worse. Yes, and these are synthetic kind of opioids, which are absolutely deadly and they're much more potent than heroin. So, you know, we have to con- consider that. And obviously, the Citizens Assembly recommendations is about harm reduction, those that fall into addiction and so forth. And there's, you know, there's people that will use drugs that will not had, have a kind of uh, a dependency issue. Um, but it, it is about saving lives, Michael. It is about kind of, we have Ireland has one of the highest drug-related deaths overdose deaths in Europe. I mean, in the north of Ireland, there's an epidemic at the moment in relation to drug-related deaths. Mm. Um, so we need to kind of have a, a more holistic kind of approach. Mm. Uh, you know, issues around safe consumption rooms are very, very good, where actually people can actually safely consume if they if they choose so to use drugs. So drugs are not going to go away. Drugs are mm. just part of life. And the gangs won't you go like away. The, the gangs no, the, they won't go away. And the guns no. won't go away. And the no. gangland feuds won't go away. No, they won't. And that's why I say this model is a better model than we have. But we have to look at kind of ways of um, regulating certain drugs. And even a wider debate, Michael, which I don't know if people maybe are ready for it, but about regulating all drugs. And that is a debate that I think may be further, further down the, the road. But we need to have a system where, you know, where the state intervenes in relation to and people that said people take drugs for all sorts of reasons. There's huge disadvantage in people's lives, huge trauma that goes on in people's lives by people turn to sometimes alcohol, sometimes, you know, to illicit drugs. So there's a kind of it's a very, very complex issue. Um, but you need in order to kind of understand and try to get a grip of addiction and why people take drugs, you kind of have to put things in place to maybe people will not kind of steer towards dependency because of certain things that happen in their lives. And you have to try to put that in place. Not perfect by any means. If we had a perfect world, Michael, tomorrow, people will still kind of turn to, you know, substance that kind of alter their mind to make them feel good, you know, mm. and the numbs pe- people's pain. You know, we have this same issue with alcohol, yeah. but we don't criminalize people that have 
you know, a, an issue with uh, alcohol. We just like if we had if, if somebody said somebody should go to prison because they have an issue with alcohol, people would laugh at you, mm. you know. But what about um, curiosity? Uh, I mean, uh, particularly young people are, are naturally curious uh, about these things. Um, what about curiosity? Uh, if, yeah. if somebody thinks, well, I'd like to try that, uh, it sounds interesting or whatever. There's absolutely no deterrent uh, if these recommendations are adopted. And I think that will be of concern to people, particularly parents, I'd imagine. Well, I mean, there is a deterrent at the moment. And that I think that will continue for the foreseeable future where, you know, if somebody has a certain amount of these, you know, illicit drugs under possession, I mean, whether taking them, that's a different matter. But obviously there is a sense of curiosity when we all grow up in relation to, you know, I suppose, sampling the drugs. I mean, it, it does happen, you know, and I think if you give young people, you know, without moralizing people, because I think that, that doesn't work, telling young people, look at if you're going to take these particular substances, you know, you've got to be very, very careful how you take them. And kind of rather than talk down to people, say kind of these are the kind of educational facts about certain drugs that you may take. That is the best way to inform young people rather than say, look, you're mm. all bad. Is that what you know, will just say no. It, it, yeah, it just doesn't it, work. But, doesn't but work. is that what will happen? I mean, I think that's. Uh, another I concern. Think will, okay, but yeah, just, just think, let me let I me think. put the point to you if I can, Gina, because I, I think it's a concern that people will have that they'll look at this and say, look, there's 36 recommendations. They're going to implement one, which will be decriminalising the drugs, yeah. and they'll forget about the rest. I mean, if somebody is found in possession wow. of cocaine or cannabis or heroin or whatever it is uh, in the future when drugs have been decriminalised in this country, what's going to happen? Are they going to be sent to a, a doctor? Are they going to be sent to some health clinic? Some rehabilitation clinic or for counselling or, or how will well, this work? Well, if somebody has, you know, found in their possession uh, a small amount of, you know, drugs in, you know, if they're taken for their, obviously I would think that, you know, in certain cases, yes, yeah, somebody should be kind of direct, not rather not through the criminal justice system, that doesn't work. But if you have a pro- problematic use for any sort of substance, then yeah, you should be given counselling or, you know, um, or diversion away from the criminal justice. That's a system that works. And we've seen that in Portugal, as I said, rather than putting people, you know, giving people criminal charges. And, and, would, it be so that, forth, and would it be that if you were sent on some sort of programme and you were tested positive for drugs, that maybe then you could get a conviction? Or, or, or how, well, I don't uh, think, how do you stop people from would, taking drugs? But people are going to take drugs no matter what. Yeah. So know? what's the and point of sending them to counselling? Well, I would say, look, at the majority of time, people don't need counselling. Mm. The majority of, you know, if people want to use drugs, if they're an adult, if they want to use cannabis, they want to use other drugs, you know, that's their business. Mm. I'll be honest with you. And they do, some people don't need, don't have issues around addiction. You just don't, you know, and you don't need counselling. And they're adults at the end of the day. They're kind of, you know, they've grown up, they're grown up and they've made the decision, you know. And now obviously you, you weigh up the, the kind okay. of, the, 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 the health kind of, uh, issues around certain drugs. That's that's but, yeah. you know but without being moralistic. Yeah. I think that is the best way to approach these things. Okay, but without being moralistic, just help help me to try and understand it a bit better. Are, are you saying uh, uh, just to, to put an example for that? I think all of us can understand. Are you saying uh, like alcohol, you've social drinkers and you've alcoholics? Uh, that drugs yeah. are the same, that most people are recreational, social users 
or consumers and then some people end up addicts. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The majority of pe- the majority of people won't have a dependency issue on illicit drugs drugs that they will use right that we consider illicit drugs mm. there will be some people that will have chronic dependency issues and they're normally the kind of drugs that you know we all know about cocaine crack you know heroin mm. which you know is extremely detrimental to your health and will kill you you know yeah. or, so, or somebody might we, kill you somebody else might kill you because yeah. you owe the money or they might or they might burn your mother or burn your mother's house down yeah, yeah, and all the violence that comes yeah. with kind of the drug gangs and so forth, it's hugely possible. So in them issue in them kind of circumstances we have to provide people, you know, with kind of circumstances where they're not gone they're not gone through uh, the criminal justice system, that they're given as much treatment as possible. There's a huge deficit in relation to treatment beds in this country, in relation to those that want to, you know, want to get their dependency off, mm. like certain drugs like heroin. And there's a huge deficit. And if you give people treatment, you know, there is better outcomes, not only for them, but their yeah. families and communities. So look at this all... <clears throat> Makes sense. The, the 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 kind of tide has gone out in relation to the model of criminalizing people. You know, it's mm. not miracle. This is not perfect by any means, right? It's mm. not a silver bullet. It's not a silver bullet, but it's a better way of, I suppose, acknowledging that there is an issue around, you know, why people take mm. drugs in the first place. A lot of people won't take drugs, Michael. Never, yeah. never. Okay, and that's fair enough. Fair aren't, enough. aren't drugs becoming more dangerous? Uh, uh, I mean, the science uh, around developing them seems uh, to have progressed uh, to a stage now where dealers are, are coming up with all sorts of things far stronger than anybody uh, remembers in the past. Fentanyl, I think, is the latest thing that there's a lot of concern about. Uh, but that, that it would not be illegal to be in possession of a small amount of fentanyl or heroin or cocaine or cannabis. No. Yeah. And obviously you're right. There's, there is no regulation in relation to, you know, you know, you know, drug gangs when they supply, you know, the, the demand for drugs, there's no regulation whatsoever. Um, now not all drugs are, you know, harmful as such, but you make the point in relation to heroin. I mean, there's, there is a kind of a situation uh, where the supply of heroin coming into Europe, uh, particularly was from Afghanistan, has begun, you know, has has broken down, mm. and drug gangs now are substituting that with synthetic opioids, which are much, much more powerful and harmful um, than uh, than heroin. And if you know somebody, there's been a huge amount of overdoses, in particularly in Dublin, the last couple of months. Um, and thankfully, nobody has died as, as such. But this is, it, you know, it, we have to be very concerned in relation to those that are dependent uh, particularly on heroin um, and they could die so it's important that no you know everything is put in place to prevent loss of life and you know give yeah. people the kind of rather than as I said criminalizing people we're going to give these people treatment as, as soon as possible here's an interesting point i think gino from a listener texting saying drugs are the ruination of uh, this country communities in drogheda have been destroyed and are suffering as a result of the drug gangs running their communities the real cause of this in fact is that the people who give them business by buying 
drugs from them in the first place. That little bag of coke purchased for the Friday or Saturday night drinks is causing untold harm to communities. And you will hear a lot of people say if you're buying illegal drugs, you're putting money in the pockets of the gangs. And that's leading to all of the problems and the shootings and the killings and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but does this, does this not legitimise that little bag of coke, uh, as our caller put it? Uh, and people will have a, a clear conscience, uh, but their money will continue to go into the pockets of the gangs. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a good point, um, and you know it's demand and supply, and people that will use drugs, you know whether it's cocaine, cannabis, the la- largely. Mo- largely, most of that money, when that transaction happens, goes into the criminal network, and they will use all sort of. I mean, Michael, I've seen it in my own area, right? Um, but moralising people because of that, I I don't think it works because when you say to somebody, well, look, if you buy X on the weekend, you're kind of funding, you know, um, Y in relation to the kind of the criminal network. Are people going to say to themselves, well, look, I think that's wrong. I'm not going to buy that particular substance. Very few people are going to really kind of say, you're actually going to quantify that in their own mind. I'll be mm-hmm. honest with you, Michael, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. So, um, but I think you need to kind of have a system now of looking at kind of regulation um, rather rather than just leaving, you know, the whole kind of the drug industry to the black market because the black mm. market essentially runs mm. the drugs industry. So we need to look at different models, um, and decriminalisation is just one model of um, of this kind of, of drug of drug use and drug policy. Um, and I think that's like I'm not kind of trivialising, you know, what's happened to communities. Mm. As I said, Michael, I've seen it in my own area, I've seen it right, terrible things that have gone on. But my life experience over the last four decades in relation to this is that what's happened in the last four decades doesn't work. In fact, it's been detrimental, more detrimental to dr- actually drugs itself. Yeah. Criminalising people, sending people through the criminal justice system and all that goes with it, mm. it just empowers and, you know, empowers individuals in communities such as ours that kind of have, you know, are doing extremely well out of somebody's other addiction and misery. Mm. And you drugs know. are widespread. People will tell you. They, oh no, yeah, yeah it's they, a terrible dark side. Yeah, it's but they, but, but people will tell you they take drugs to have a, a good time, the same way they yeah. drink alcohol to have a, a good time. But that's not always the reason. Uh, people use no, cannabis no. for medical purposes, uh, and that's a, a, an issue that you raised in the doll yesterday, following what was a huge report, two hundred and twenty pages. You said uh, from the Health Research Board on medical cannabis cannabis uh, and how that it should be prescribed for nerve pain and neuropathic pain. Uh, you raised this yeah. with the Taoiseach also yesterday. What did Leo Bradker have to say about that? Or um, it was Michal Martin, was it? It was Michal Martin, yeah. 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 So yeah. obviously uh, the Health Research Board uh, published a report about the Medical Cannabis Access Programme on Tuesday. It's a very extensive report. And obviously if your listeners I presume have been kind of to a certain degree have been following this story. The law was changed in 2019, so cannabis um, can be uh, prescribed under certain circumstances for certain conditions under via this uh, medical cannabis access program. So this report has uh, stated that, uh, particularly around neuropathic pain, there is very very good evidence that medical cannabis can be, bene- be very beneficial, particularly for that condition. 
So um, now it's kind of said there's not much evidence to a certain degree around certain other conditions and so forth. I mean, that's up for kind of questioning and so forth. Um, but the, the, the main thing from the report that I would take on a positive note is that the program needs to be ex- expanded. At the moment, there's only 50 people, Michael, mm. that gets cannabis under prescription via the program. Uh, for the three stated conditions but if it, it needs to expand to include neuropathic pain and if that expands then obviously more people get it because at the moment it's it's so restrictive that you know it's almost it's to a certain degree it's redundant you know um but if people can get it under prescription that's good and that kind of h- helps them um but it needs to expand to include other conditions otherwise I don't really, don't, I don't know really where it's going to go after that. All right. Well, uh, it's a peculiar conversation uh, to have, as you say, after four decades of having a, a completely different conversation. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on Thanks, the programme today. Gino Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Of course, the government can act on the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly on drugs use in whichever way it decides is fit and appropriate. And I suppose the next question is, what will they do or what should they do? Uh, Should they decriminalise drugs? Should they legalise some drugs or all drugs or just cannabis, as Gino Kenny was uh, suggesting there? Or should they continue with the status quo and the criminal justice system and that anybody found with drugs will be in front of a judge and facing prosecution? Let us know what you think. Our phone number is 0419832000. That's 0419. 983-2000. You can also comment by texting or texting via WhatsApp on 086-1800-658. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, a decision, uh, an interim uh, position uh, from the International Court of Justice on whether South Africa is committing genocide uh, on whether Israel, I beg your pardon, is committing genocide uh, because of its bombardment of Gaza is expected today, the case taken by South Africa. Since has to, uh, has to reveal here the, the, the destruction and torture and, and killing and slaughter of um, women and children and these whole families and whole communities. And what I can't understand at all is the barbaric nature of where they're all moved into an area. This is a tiny bit of land anyway, and then they're told they're bombarded of that again. So this is Pure, I, I don't know how you couldn't call it genocide, but um, I, I, we're inundated with emails here. You think that we have, we're all powerful, that we can do a lot, but Ireland as a neutral country always must maintain our neutrality and must work as we have respect to the Lord of the world uh, of punching above our weight and trying to bring about a ceasefire here. Yeah, that's independent TD, Matty McGrath, an issue that dominated dull business over the course of this week. Any decision we take on intervention will be based detailed and rigorous legal analysis. As in the Ukraine versus Russia case, and again that was thrown around as if we just joined it, um, that w- it took some time to join the Ukraine versus Russia. And so Russia actually accused Ukraine of genocide initially, and Russia used that claim of genocide against Ukraine as a basis for its invasion. Uh, Ukraine refuted that uh, claim of genocide by, by, by Russia, um, <clears throat> and we declared our intervention in that case six months after the provisional order and after ongoing consultations with Ukraine. That's the, the truth of that situation. I'm not saying it'll take that long here, um, but that's what happened factually in terms of 
the Ukraine um, case. Um, and um, again, to say internationally and globally, no one questions either Ireland's bona fides in respect of this issue uh, or the leadership we have shown from the very beginning of this in terms of asserting the Palestinian right to its own state, uh, an immediate ceasefire, and above all, an unimpeded um, access to, to goods. Because all of the Arab leaders said to us yesterday, just before they left, while people were talking about peace plans and this and that, they said, can we get more trucks in? We need more trucks in tomorrow. We need more aid in. That's the immediate priority that they're calling for. I'm very conscious, Cahillig, of the significant public interest and concern on Gaza. I know that the very visible expressions of solidarity that have taken place across the country over we recent weeks and months are hard and valued by the Palestinian people. However, I do regret that the rhetoric of a small number of individuals has been unacceptable. Calling for the total dismantlement of Israel, as some in this House have done, I don't believe is acceptable. Um, and by implication, and I read the people before Prophet statement last week, it essentially condoned the Hamas attack of October the 7th. It, it, it said that's the background to what happened on October the 2nd. Uh, and I think, I haven't heard you condemn it, ever. Um, and that's telling in itself, Deputy. The boy, Barry, you, you, you're interrupting. You've never, ever condemned it, uh, the Hamas attack on October the 7th, which involved brutal murder, rape, and violation of human rights as well. So, deny, and I would argue that denying the right of the Jewish people to self-determination is not acceptable either. And blaming individual Israeli or Jewish people for the actions of the Israeli government is not acceptable. That's uh, and uh, Michal Martin's uh, opinion on this situation, uh, speaking in the Dáil earlier this week. Shockingly, when I raised it the week before, and it was the first time it was brought up in the Dáil, the government didn't know the difference between the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice, and gave excuses that related to the ICC but didn't in any sense acknowledge their responsibilities under the Genocide Convention. At that point, there were 11,000 people murdered by Israel. There are now 25,000, 14,000 people more dead. There were 1 million people displaced at that time. There are now 2 million people displaced. 75% of all homes in Gaza have been destroyed. Israel is levelling Gaza. In front of the world, it is ticking every single box under the Genocide Convention for the Commission of Genocide. And every single government, including our own, who signed the Genocide Convention and has failed to act to stop this genocide and initiate proceedings and impose sanctions against Israel for the Commission of Genocide should hang their heads in shame. It is absolutely outrageous. What good will the case be in two years' time when the genocide is happening now. It's outrageous. That's Richard Boyd Barrett of People Before Profit uh, making his criticisms heard in the Dáil. Let's uh, hear from uh, another government representative, Minister Peter Burke. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is catastrophic. It simply cannot be allowed to deteriorate further. It is vital that the provision is made for more aid to enter. In the shadow of such devastation, it is important that we do not forget the appalling situation in the West Bank, which is extremely concerning. Since October 7th, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reports 358 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, 
including eight people who have been killed by violent settlers. Since 2005, when the UN records began, 2023 was the single year with the highest number of Palestinian casualties in the West Bank. It is also crucial that we are alive to the threat of further regional escalation of this conflict. The attacks by the Houthis in Yemen on civilian shipping in the Red Sea not only puts lives and crews at risk, but they also have a detrimental effect on global trade, the knock-on effects of which hurt the very poorest. I'm also deeply aware of the continued tense situation along the blue line between Israel and Lebanon. We cannot allow any further escalation of violence, which would have a catastrophic effect. Cahirlach, Ireland is continuing to do all we can to call for an immediate ceasefire. We must prevent the conflict continuing, which will not only result in further deaths, but prolong the cycles of violence, which have plagued the region for generations. We must not lose sight of the prospect of a peaceful and secure future for all the people in the region, however distant that might seem. The first step is a ceasefire now without delay. All right, that's uh, Minister Peter Burke. Uh, an email uh, from Danny O'Hanlon. Thanks uh, indeed, uh, Danny, uh, for taking the time uh, to write to us. And he says, Dear Michael Thomas Burns, gutless defence of uh, this government's and Biden's support of Israeli genocide is more than contemptible. What more evidence do we need? Netanyahu and his henchmen are on our TVs nightly telling us that Israel will not stop their moral and illegal actions against Palestinians that we see with our own eyes and that they've been getting away with for decades. Israel would not be able to continue with this barbarism without Joe Biden, American, British and EU financial, political and military support. The world can see the 1980s video evidence of Biden claiming that if Israel did not exist, they would have to invent it to protect American interests. Burns' ignorant and naive claim that attitudes towards Israel are changing in America are, and reference to a two-state solution are totally misleading and a deception and a distraction when Ireland and the US do not even recognise the state of Palestine. Ireland's excuse that it is waiting for a combined EU ruling first is just more total hypocrisy, according to Danny, uh, who says the government's misleading playing with words like support or intervention in the South African International Court of Justice case is disgusting and really makes Ireland complicit in this Israeli genocide of Palestinians. Thanks, Danny, indeed, uh, for sharing your views with us. Uh, I I think uh, your analysis of it all will be put to the test pretty soon because the Taunisha, as you know, uh, and indeed Thomas Byrne said on uh, the programme yesterday, that what they will do is, is wait for this decision that is being made by the court today before making a decision. So uh, it's quite possible that Ireland will uh, support the South African case. No other country in the world is supporting the South African case as we speak. It's not possible as we speak to support the South African case, Uh, but perhaps in time it is what the Irish government will do. Uh, And as I say, that will be the time to test uh, the accusations, if you like, that you've made in your letter, Danny. But thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, That's an email that came to us at michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, an interesting comment indeed from Cahill in Mornington about uh, the report and the recommendations from uh, the Citizens' Assembly on drugs use. It's telling the government, decriminalise all drugs. Cahill says... It was a really interesting debate on the radio this morning with Gino Kenny. Decriminalisation doesn't always work, though, Cahill says. He says those who are pushing for decriminalisation typically cite Portugal as an example. However, maybe they should look at what's happening in Portland, Oregon. The city is currently battling a fentanyl epidemic as a result of decriminalisation, says Cahill. Thanks indeed uh, for that. Uh, Not much uh, response, I have to say, uh, surprisingly so, uh, to the debate on drugs. Uh, But our phone lines are open. I presume they're working. And if you want to call us, 0419832000 is our number. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, yesterday, the first in a series of safe habitus policy seminars took place in Europe. What's that a- about? Well, it's to take a-, a look at mental health and indeed why farmers across the EU are dying from suicide. The event was hosted by Irish MEP Maria Walsh and Finnish MEP Petri Sarvama. We're joined now by Maria Walsh, MEP, and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This was an opportunity as I understand it uh, for people involved in agriculture from across Europe to come together and share the knowledge that has been gained by each of uh, those people. What did you learn from yesterday's seminar can you tell us? Good morning and thank you very much for having me on and to as you shared um, in your introduction Safe Habitats is it's a Horizon Europe funding research project so first of its type we really focused on mental health and the well-being of farmers um, and we had representatives from uh, Finland, Belgium, ourselves of course, Ireland, um, we had uh, f- French organisations, um, we had uh, key experts then in research from right across other member states and then we leaned in onto what other non-EU countries like Australia, the United Kingdom and some of what the United States is doing to understand that this is an epidemic um, uh, that we have competency as a collective member state group to really seek out further research, understand data and ultimately come to a point where we are uh, fixing the stressors uh, that were identified like isolation, uh, succession, uh, language around mental health or mind fitness as was shared, um, societal expectations and then two key takeaways as a policymaker like myself is the stressors that are rooted in finance uh, and the fact that we as policymakers uh, continue to shift the goalposts mm. um, in terms of how uh, CAP is shifting into a more climate focused and not for food production. Th- this I've heard from farmers many times before and something uh, me and my colleagues are, are working to and that identify that's and team into. It's that, and that it's impacting Absolutely. Negative. Okay, all right. Uh, Absolutely. And, 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 and I'm sorry, just to explain what you meant uh, when you said uh, that you should tackle societal expectations. What are the expectations uh, and why are they damaging to people? 
Yeah, well, as, as was shared by uh, researchers uh, yesterday, it was uh, essentially the narrative that farmers and our farm families, our rural communities, are uh, are this. Are, are the main contributors to our climate crisis, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, uh, that the fact that when you read headlines, it is uh, farmers and the way of life uh, is creating um, the impacts you're seeing around the world, um, and that they are the main culprits in this. And and the very negative language in um, in our climate, essentially, that was the main focus from researchers yesterday. Uh, and that ultimately we need to pin down. We need to ensure that media are, are sharing true narratives, that our farmers are at the table and hearing their voices uh, within within the communication of this and that we are bridging that gap. Um, and, I, and, and I say, mm. you know, I, I have to take responsibility as a policymaker here to not point the finger to, to quick wins or buying into the populist, uh, populist narrative too. And many of my colleagues agree too that we have an awful lot of work to do on the ground to yeah. ensure that the, the people that are putting food on our table a number of times a day that are are a very a very big part of our SME market uh, in this country and across the EU are feeling regardless value, of, are seeing regardless that value of, and are, are feeling that support. Regardless of the emissions or, or that uh, because uh, criticism of farming methods may lead to poor mental health, we look the other way. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the point. Uh, can you repeat that again? Sorry. Um, are, are you suggesting uh, that uh, we don't talk about uh, emissions, carbon emissions uh, from the farming no. sector for fear that it will impact negatively on the mm-hmm. mental health of farmers uh, and that we end up looking the other way and don't mm-hmm. worry about saving the planet? No, no, I, no, it couldn't be further from the truth. I, uh, and, and apologies if that's the narrative that you picked up on, on what I just shared there. Uh, let me be let me be a little bit clearer here. Uh, it's a case of they go hand in hand. Our farmers are custodians of the land, have been working the land for a very long time. Yeah. But the narrative that's also put out there is um, that they are the main contributors to the detriment of climate crisis, where, uh, well, yes, there's, there's a lot of low-hanging well, fruit to be done, uh, and there's, there's ways... Hang on, can I just, add, can yeah, I just finish yeah, this point, yeah, if you don't okay, mind? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That there is absolutely ways to be more uh, sufficient towards our climate. There's definitely impacts in terms of making better water quality mm. uh, choices and how we okay. uh, how we farmland. Yep. But ultimately, it's it's all of us needing to take responsibility and all okay. industries need uh, to take I'm sorry, that just, I'm, I'm sorry, Maria, that just sounds silly to me. Uh, I mean... Uh, you, you're, you're, you're saying that we shouldn't be saying that uh, most emissions, carbon emissions in this country... No, I didn't say that, uh, no, I didn't say that Michael. I, 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 what I was saying is based off the experts and the research shared yesterday um, that the you, you picked up on the societal expectations that was outlined as one of the key stressors. Adding to that, um, the narrative that farmers are the only farm families are the only people uh, uh, creating a climate crisis is simply not factual. I, I've never multiple heard that. other industries. I've never heard anybody say that. Maybe it's just me. Well, maybe, but, maybe maybe I'm missing something. But who name one person who's ever said that? Well, based off the research as I heard yesterday. Uh, that that somebody said so, that, that there's that somebody were, that there's somebody on this planet somewhere mm-hmm. that said that the only people who are causing uh, damage to uh, climate are farmers. I, that, I've never heard anybody say anything of the sort. Well, well, let me restress again. As experts shared yesterday, 
that when interviewing and when conducting their research, but it doesn't matter who said it. It doesn't matter who said it or what level of research was put into this. It, it, it's not true. Nobody has ever said farmers are on their own in isolation, responsible for climate change. Uh, it doesn't add up. Uh, and if it does, cite one person or or a group or whatever, because there's no uh, basis in that statement. Okay, well, let me let me just take this back again. When farmers and farm families right across the member member states were interviewed for certain research that was shared yesterday, a number of stressors that were creating mental health challenges and impacts to their mental health, societal expectations, and you asked me to 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 lean into that, and this is what was shared in terms of how farmers and farm families are feeling about societal expectations towards their industry. So this is, just to be really clear here, uh, I'm not quoting, uh, I'm just, uh, in terms of the all-seeing eye, I'm just saying this is what was shared by key experts and academics yesterday. Is it a perception? Farm families, about our farm families and our farmers right across the member states are feeling about it. So so it's a perception. So so in other words, it's the way farmers feel about it. I think you've explained it there. That's a perception that farmers have, rightly or wrongly so. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, we can go back and forth on this, uh, and I'm happy to do so, but we have a core group of our SMEs, our farm families, our rural communities, that are feeling a number of stressors and are impacting their mental health. And then uh, from the work I've been doing in the last number of years and the fact that Safe Habitus, which uh, is, as I mentioned, a Horizon York funded research project with the likes of uh, Dr. David Meredith being the project coordinator from Chagas, Um, We have an awful lot of work to do on eradicating and finally ending the pandemic that is mental health that's impacting our farmers and our farm families right across the country. Um, And what was taken from yesterday was uh, the likes of France who have action plans and they're being held accountable. And that I I would want to lean into and make sure our own country is buying into that, as well as if you compare us to Finland, where they have funding dedicated to Mm. farmers' mental health. So it 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. It was a shared competency. Mm-hmm. It was outlining oh, most different issues, as mentioned. Yeah. And, then, mm. and then what we can do collectively to ensure that we are not seeing such high levels mm. and prevailing issues on mental health with our families. Uh, and very, and very good work uh, to undermine that and, uh, and applaud uh, you and those involved in trying to tackle what you're describing as a, a pandemic uh, per mental health and uh, indeed how that can lead to suicide. One of the stressors, as you put it, uh, is isolation. How can that be tackled if farmers live in isolation? Well, I, I think uh, key tools is um, around um, knowledge transfer. Um, uh, one suggestion yesterday was better better connecting in terms of community. So knowledge transfer clinics where people are coming together more and more often are um, more advisors to who are upskilled and trained in, uh, in mental health uh, awareness so that when they see or feel uh, a farmer who is slowly reducing themselves or isolating more and more, that they can tackle and work with the farmer on that. And then ultimately, how do you be one good adult and one good neighbour? We're checking in more and more on our community, uh, particularly those that live in, in a more rural area. Um, one farm that was shared yesterday um, directly was, you know, uh, from John Keane, of uh, former Mocker president who, who, found, who founded uh, Make the Move. Uh, a story shared to him was, a farmer in isolation he gets to see the postman every two days mm. um, and how do we how, how do we up that well we show up for each other um, we we make sure that people are being picked up and dropped off that we're checking in uh, that we are leaving beyond our perhaps our silo living lives and and, uh, and we're really trying to be uh, that spirit of mehel uh, where we're showing up for each other and really and really helping but leaning into what I mentioned earlier in terms of action plans that the likes of France are doing for their agriculture community. This was building in uh, resilient programs. If a farmer attended the march, that there is uh, something on hand just to um, just to, to talk with them in a very agri-focused language so that they don't feel that there's any stigma or discrimination faced if they have issues and they want to tackle their mental health. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for Thanks joining very us. Very interesting. Maria Walsh, Finnegale MEP. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Tonister, last May the CEO of Loud County Council had disallowed a motion put forward by councillors around rescinding the freedom of, of Drogheda from brother Edmund Garvey, a man who, was, who had devised that legal strategy designed to frustrate the efforts of child sex abuse victims in achieving justice. Now, the Michael Reid Show on LMFM Radio submitted several freedom of information requests and appeals seeking information on the situation and was furnished with just five documents. Now, after a ruling by the Information Commissioner, a new search discovered 892 emails that they had been initially denied there was any exist- the existence of them. Now, victims have concerns that the Chief Executive has breached the Local Government Act, Tonister, and that Deputy. the Council no, have no, broken no. the, the no, Freedom of no, Information no. Act. No, you can't. You can't. Sorry, Deputy. You cannot come in and make accusations against somebody outside the House who's not in a position to defend herself. 
You cannot do that here. If there were concerns that there were any breaches of the FOI Act or the Local Government Act, would the Tánaiste have serious concerns about those breaches? And what would the government actually do? Thank would they you, look Monster. at reforming the FOI Act or indeed what safeguards Thank exist where the authority, when local authorities Thank breach you. them? And is that a matter you take seriously? What would you do about uh, it? Well, again, uh, um, the, the Freedom of Information legislative framework is a very comprehensive one. It allows for appeals uh, in respect of decisions to refuse information. Uh, we've always supported the fullest cooperation with requests for information at all levels of government. Uh, government doesn't intervene in local authorities all of the time because if we did, the very first people would be yourselves and others to say we're interfering in the work of local authorities. But I'm not clear in the original, I'm not clear how a CEO can disallow um, a councillor's motion now. A motion, uh, that seems, you, that's how you have presented it. I don't know is that the full story, uh, but I would find it difficult to comprehend how if the democratically elected representatives propose a motion, unless it's ultraviaries or contravenes the law or whatever, I don't know. On what basis or on what grounds? Some very interesting disallowed. things happen in local government. Uh, well, I can say that in my early time as a councillor, uh, I was refused for two years FOI in relation to a dump that I wanted closed. And I eventually got the information. I then realised why I didn't get it two years earlier. Now it's a, an amenity park and a wonderful amenity All park right. in the area. Thank you. So FOI has its role Thank and we you. want to see it Thank you. adhered to. Hopefully, nobody will have to martyr themselves to progress the project. <laughs> Um, Deputy Ferguson, uh, I share the concerns of Deputy Munster in relation to the FOI Act in County Loud. I think it's important uh, that we bring it to address with the Minister and the Information Commissioner and get a resolution. The voices of Fine Gael TD, Ferguson O'Dowd, Tonishta, Mihal Martin, and Sinn Fein TD, Imelda Munster, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the Tonishta seemed surprised, uh, I suppose, at what uh, you were relaying, uh, confused as to how it could have happened uh, for that matter. Was that your impression of his response? Well, yes, and I, I was directly opposite him, so I could see his facial expression too. And I would say um, more so dismayed was his reaction when he said, you know, it's not clear how a CEO could disallow a councillor's motion, that he, he found it very difficult to comprehend how a democratically elected representative, you know, how motion but it could be withdrawn you know on yeah. what basis he seemed absolutely flabbergasted he, he did say unless it was ultra virus or if yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was uh, against the law in some way or yeah. something like that yeah. um, uh, and that's been argued back and forth I suppose uh, Louth County Council argues uh, that the legal advice was that this could have been defamatory or subdued to say uh, I'm not sure uh, what your thoughts on that are well I mean I think if you look, when it all boils down, if I had got, if I had taken a stand that the CEO had taken and I had got legal advice and I was quite comfortable in my own skin with that legal advice, that I, firstly, I was justified in initiating that legal advice and secondly, that that legal advice, you know, justified my concerns, then I would have no issue. In fact, I'd go out of my way to say, here's my legal advice. Mm. Here's the legal advice I got. Now, 
if any of you want to contradict that or whatever, go to your, your own solicitors or what have you. But here's the legal advice. What I can't comprehend at all is the to and fro and the, 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 what well, we know that the initial legal advice that said that, you know, that the, the, there, um, the, the, he, this, the, the legal advice that said that there were, didn't see that there were any concerns, um, of, and of that nature, and they should be referred to the Cahirlock, mm. you know, and we know that that wasn't done. But why would you get legal advice? And if you're questioned on it, why would you not produce it? And that's the thing. Mm. I think Once you're actually right, I think applying you're t- a legal advice, or we don't know yeah. because. I think you're talking about a, a solicitor's letter uh, that was sent uh, late at night. Um, uh, and uh, there's probably another story behind that story that we'll come back to on another day. Uh, but uh, that letter said that there's nothing in the standing orders. There's nothing pre- to prevent uh, the, the issues or the nature of motions from being tabled um, and that uh, it should be referred to the Cahirlock. It wasn't referred to the Cahirlock according to the Cahirlock. Uh, Conor Keelan uh, made his views known. Uh, Conor Keelan said he disagreed with the decision. He wanted the motion to be tabled, debated and voted on. But uh, the chief executive uh, overrode that. Uh, his dissatisfaction is recorded in the minutes of Loud County Council and indeed he has said as much uh, uh, on a number of occasions on this programme. Uh, so it does appear that there's a bit of a problem there, doesn't there? Yes, it, it appears that there could well be a breach of the Local Government Act. As I said yesterday, the Taunister of the country actually seemed completely dismayed by it and couldn't comprehend it. Um, so there's there's an issue there that needs very much so, needs to be investigated further. Um, it just doesn't sit comfortable for local democracy. It doesn't sit comfortable that, you know, local authorities, we need to we need to be confident that they're adhering to, to say, Local Government Act or Freedom of Information Act. Um, it's all, mm. again, it's about the principle of it all and about transparency and accountability. And it just, you know, it created a whole... Ferrari, if you like, and justifiably so. Yeah. I mean, mm. I can't remember. Now, I could be sound to be correct, but I can't remember ever having been told that a motion wasn't to be allowed, and then not kicking up a stink about it. And speaking to councillors around the country, nobody can remember in their local authorities ever having mm. the CEO unilaterally withdraw a motion yeah. and point blank refuse to have it and then not back it up with anything as such you know or yeah. not produce evidence as to the reason Pro- produce they, produce pr- showing the legal advice uh, because uh, we're told this legal advice nobody other than members of the executive have seen this legal uh, advice uh, and uh, whatever legal advice was given to the council you'd have to wonder about it because the motion was eventually tabled uh, debated and voted on in July uh, this was a motion yes, so, that was removed in May and then uh, put on, on uh, the July agenda. So what what happened? You know, what was the difference? What happened in between? What what was going on here? Like, you know, what was it? Was it, you know, if the legal advice, mm. if they were that confident in the legal advice, then they would have, you know, adhered to their initial stance. Yeah. But but to and would you like let to it go through them? Was that public pressure? Was that the, the amount of questioning that was going on that they felt they were under the spotlight? But again, it comes back to me: if you'd legal advice, if I had got legal advice, if I take the stand, I'd say, "Here's the legal advice. Mm. 
here's what I got. I feel justified based on that legal advice. And I can't understand, even if she doesn't want to show it to the local reps for reasons best known to herself. I can't comprehend that at all, by the way. But show it maybe to the the minister, Kieran O'Donnell. Show it to the... Show it even to the tarnished of the country that was absolutely dismayed mm. at hearing that and found it difficult to even comprehend how that could happen in a local democracy. Is that what uh, you believe should happen now? That I, I believe so. I believe so. Look, if you've got legal advice and you're comfortable with it, show it. Why, why would you... Mm. Go to the extremes of cause and but all that. Is that even stress, is that even enough to clear up this? Uh, because uh, there's uh, another question here. If there was legal advice, you have to look at, at the roles of, of the mm. people involved under the legislation. So, in other words, this is the law. The law says that the chief executive's role is to advise and assist. Uh, the yeah. uh, option of allowing or disallowing a motion is a reserve function of the councillors. So, uh, if the CEO, as I understand it, if the CEO believed that this motion shouldn't be tabled based on legal advice, as I understand it, she should have advised the council, in other words, the elected members, or the Cahirlock on their behalf, and assisted the Cahirlock in either disallowing the motion or bringing a motion that was legally sound to the agenda. Yes, I think, look, I mean, at this stage now, between the the FOI requests, they furnished five, and then, you know, when they were directed by the Information Commissioner to carry out a new search, all of a sudden 890-odd emails um, that they originally had when they didn't produce them, mm. obviously didn't said they didn't even exist. Between that and the Local Government Act, I do think there needs to be further investigation, but I, needs to be, I think it's from uh, government level at this stage because you have the Local Government Act and you have serious questions about um, councillors being prevented in doing the, the work that they're democratically to do and, and when they elected, democratically elected to do and been prevented using the the reserved functions by yeah. having a motion withdrawn. I mean that's that's serious in its nature. If it's not if it's not investigated and allowed to continue, then you know if the, if something like that is is just brushed onto the carpet, mm. the next time it comes around and the next time and then all of a sudden you've no local democracy. Right. Of no voice whatsoever. So from that perspective, you know the minister for local government needs to up the ante on this, look into it, make an inquiry, get all, speak to all the relevant people that's been involved in this, um, look into, you know, the steps taken by Loud County Council in relation to the Local Government Act, the steps taken by Loud County Council in relation to the Freedom of Information Act. But certainly it can't go unchallenged. Uh, we believe from Damien O'Farrell, the Dublin City Councillor who has been representing uh, the men who were victims of child sexual abuse at uh, the hands of Christian Brothers uh, who wanted this motion on the agenda because of the way the Christian Brothers were treating them and obstructing them from accessing justice, that this is going to be investigated by the standards in public office, by SIPO. Uh, Is that sufficient or do you believe that it also requires the involvement of the minister? I think it requires the involvement of the minister for the simple reason he's the minister 
in charge. The buck stops with him. He's he's the minister tasked with, you know, local government and ensuring that local government runs according to legislation. Um, local Government Act is there for a reason. Um, and if there are issues raised and concerned with, with possible uh, breaches of the Local Government Act, then of course it's his job to step in. But even in the interest of local democracy, I mean, there's an issue here that's caused a huge furore, caused further distress to the victims, um, raises questions that even the Taunashta, the country, said is difficult to comprehend. So it has to go to the Minister, in my opinion. What about uh, councillors? And again, uh, looking at the role uh, that people have at council level, and again, as I understand it, uh, the chief executive and uh, the members of the executive board are accountable, are they not, to the elected representatives, the councillors. Is there a role for the councillors in this? They did uh, bring it up. Uh, There was an hour, over an hour's uh, debate uh, at the last meeting of uh, the local authority. Uh, I think uh, some of the councillors at the time said that uh, they would see what happened at the monthly meeting and then consider their options. Uh, What would you be saying, let's say, to the Sinn Féin councillors on Loud County Council? Well, it depends, I suppose. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work, that officials um, within local authorities are answerable to the, the councillors. And councillors have specific reserved functions, such as putting, putting motions in. Um, now, having spent 12 years on the council, I know how frustrating it, it can be at times, trying to get things done and trying to, you know, um, put pressure on local authorities to do to do works and uh, all of that, you know, all that that entails. But I think maybe now that the the Taunashta has expressed, you know, dismay, if you like, again, um, at what happened, that might actually encourage the local councillors now to to proceed, you know, with, because at the end of the day, it's 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 stopping them in doing their their work. It's it hindered. I mean, the, the the hassle that went on there just to get a motion on that you know wasn't. We've seen nothing that said there was anything illegal about it in the first instance, or that there was any. It should have been there was any justification in removing it in the first instance. So it might encourage councillors maybe just to challenge that even more. Okay, how? Well, that's up to. I'm not going to. Okay. It's the councillors what to do. That's up to themselves. Mm. You know, I myself, I just go on the. I abide by what feels right in your gut. Um, you know, you stand up for what's right. If something doesn't sit comfortable, then you you fight it. You might not always win it, but you you put up a, an argument against it and mm. and do your best to do it. It to me, it always comes down to the principle of the matter transparency and accountability and I'm sure that's the same for the councillors and that's if you abide by that you can't go too far wrong. Alright, somebody said to me yesterday what does it matter um, uh, in September uh, the members in Drogheda rescinded the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Ed- Edmund Garvey uh, and in July the County Council uh, debated and uh, adopted uh, Maeve Yor's motion uh, I think it was a third formula of words but it happened and it went to Drogheda and Drogheda uh, uh, rescinded the civic honour. Uh, can you answer that? What, what, what does it matter? 
Sorry, so, so, I, 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 I mean, the suggestion was uh, all this is over with. Uh, I mean, the objective was to rescind the freedom of oh, uh, right. and yeah, so yeah, on. Yeah. And the, no, the, no, the motion might have yeah. been blocked, but it eventually was. To, it was only blocked for two months. Uh, so what does it matter? <laughs> it matters greatly, actually, in relation to... I mean, there's enough powers being taken away from local uh, government and local democracy. There's enough, you know, councillors have very little and few powers left um, as local representatives at the local forum of the local authorities, yeah. if you like. So it's imperative that the ones they have are that, that are not blocked from carrying out those. And it's, it's the, again, it's the principle, the principle of the, 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 what I would see is a flippant attitude when that FO, FOI request went in where you're furnished with five items of correspondence and then had to go to the information commissioner who then had to direct them and then they found out there was 892 um, emails that they hadn't bothered to, to to either search for or just thought, here, we'll just give out what we like, we're not. That flippant attitude to um, mm. legal obliga- obligations, that matters. Right. And local democracy and councillors' reserved functions and not being blocked from doing what they feel is right, that matters. Right. And if you don't challenge things like that, then you've, you've no accountability anywhere. All right. So it matters greatly. Uh, I'd like to ask you about something else, uh, and if you think it matters. Um, in, in September, uh, the Drogheda-based councillors voted to rescind the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. Uh, there's nothing to reflect that today. The role of honour on the Loud County Council website makes no reference to that. Um, as I understand it, um, Damien O'Farrell, uh, the Dublin City Councillor who represents the victims, made contact with the C- CEO asking why. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, the reason he was given was that uh, they decided to wait in case Brother Edmund Garvey sued them. That's that's a disgrace. I mean, there, there, there you go again. You said someone said, well, why does it matter? There was a decision taken after going through, jumping through hoops to get to it, having been obstructed and obstructed. And um, and the decision was finally taken by the local councillors in their de- democratic forum. And the officials have not honoured that decision. So, again, that's an absolute disgrace. And I can't see how the councillors aren't literally going buck mad over that. I mean, that's that's an absolute insult at that stage that, that there's no reference of any sort made on the local authorities' role of honour to that motion that was put forward by the local councillors, the local representatives, and endorsed by them, and now the council are refusing to act on it. I mean, that should be corrected straight away. Well, I, I think they I mean, said they'd look at it and look, um, you know, but that, that you know, the sure. they, they I mean, decided. The decisions made. I, I, yeah, but I, there I, they go again, calling the shots. Yeah, that's that's the local officials calling the shots again. The councillors have made their decision. It's the job then of the officials to implement that decision, which would have made, would have required making reference or you know altering the role of honour in adherence to what the the decision that the councillors had made, and here they are again dismissing that or ignoring that. Mm. Okay. 
I'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath and Melda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. I was listening to the ad there a minute ago about being registered to, to vote uh, and if you're not registered you can't vote and if uh, that's the case well then you won't be able to vote on the 8th of March because we all have a, an opportunity to vote on the 8th of March as to whether we want to amend the Constitution in two separate Votes. First of all, people should ask themselves whether what they're reading is an opinion or a fact. And, and that's important because a lot of what's been said to date is opinion. And obviously debate is generally around people's opinions. Um, and we've set out, I think, some good questions in the booklet. How do I know this is true? Who's telling me? Have they produced any evidence? Have they linked what they're saying to the text of the Constitution? Have they linked it to the text of the referendum? Have they linked it to what we've said? Have they linked it to to commentators that they trust? And is there any way that I can act to confirm it for myself? So these are the kind of questions people should ask themselves. Our our frequently asked question part of the website will, will, we hope, explain certain provisions of the Constitution and certain questions that arise, and we keep that up to date in the light of questions as they arise. Um, But I think it's important, the first thing to ask yourself is, is this somebody's opinion or is this person giving me a fact? And if so, where does the fact come from? What's what's the source of it? One of the key objectives of Oncomishun Taokwan is to establish itself as a trusted source of information and we can only do that by proving um, to to everybody that we are, in fact, um, uh, such an organization. So we, we will be starting an online campaign probably in the, in the middle of February um, to offer some advice to people in relation to uh, misinformation and disinformation along the lines just suggested by the judge. All right, we have a rocky road ahead of us, uh, I think, uh, because misinformation will be order of the day. The Electoral Commission will be there to sort out uh, the uh, ifs and buts and maybes and any doubts that you have about what you're hearing by giving impartial information, accurate information, factual information. And you've just been listening there to the chair of uh, the Electoral Commission, Justice Marie Baker, along with uh, the CEO of uh, the Electoral Commission, Art O'Leary. Michael Reed on LMFM. You'll remember, I'm sure you'll never forget how last year RTE was marred in controversy. But it's a new year, new director general, and RTE might have been saying to themselves, it's behind you. That's up to yesterday and the Grant Thornton report on the Toy Show musical, which clearly says, oh, no, it isn't. Let's speak uh, to the chair of the Oroctus Media Committee, Finnefall TD for Kevin Monaghan, Neve Smith. A very good morning to you, Neve Smith. Thanks uh, indeed morning, for joining Michael. us. Uh, there's uh, some serious governance problems uh, that relate uh, to the staging of uh, this musical and the ultimate loss of over 2.2 million euro. What questions have you got at this stage? Well, Michael, it's alarming in terms of the cavalier attitude uh, that seems to have been there in terms of making decisions without a board approval, without 
real interrogation of project ideas. This idea that you can move one um, money from one account to another just to bolster how sponsorship looks. And the idea that, you know, half of the board will meet with some of the executive you know, none of it bodes well for governance, for oversight and for transparency. All the things that we suspected and became very clear to us really throughout the, the committee hearings. And, and I still go back to the point that I feel the executive did treat their board with contempt. They had no regard or respect for their role. They This, this report clearly demonstrates not only did they withhold information, but they even, you know, f- messed about with the figures that they were giving them. I mean, there's mm. serious questions to be answered for those involved to to do and take it upon themselves to have that, you know, as I said, cavalier approach and attitude to what should have been the highest uh, level within the organisation. And that was the board appointed by the minister. Uh, and do you think that the board are victims in all of this? Uh, because I suppose people might say, well, why didn't they ask questions? Why didn't they say, how come you're spending so much money without uh, written a- approval? The minister has said that she wants uh, the five board members uh, who were in place then and are still in place to remain on the board so that they can be held uh, accountable. Uh, Do you think that there are questions for those members? I certainly do. And as I said before, I would have far more respect for them to stay in the position, come into the committee, go through robustly with us this report. I'm sure they can bring more clarity too, because what I think is deeply unfair to them is, and I understand why Grant Thornton had to do it, but and not all of the members are so intimately involved with, with the goings-on or the wrongdoings within this organisation and this dysfunctionality. Clearly, some of the board were, came at, were, were held at very much arm's length. I mean, not everybody from the board attended the meetings with the executive when they were having discussions around projects like the Toy Show the musical. And my understanding is there was a precedence there within RTE that if a project went over two million, it was an understood thing that it did have to go for approval, that it did have to be rigorously interrogated by the board. Now, if the executive, who are the only people with the information in the first place, make a deliberate decision not to share that with the board and then go a step further and make a deliberate decision to give false information to a board, which effectively they did when they started moving money from one account, uh, from the revenue and advertising account mm. into the sponsorship account to make it look good. I mean, it is really a sackable offence, in my opinion, and that would certainly be the case if it was a private company they were working mm. in. They overstated sponsorship by €75,000. It's uh, hard to believe, uh, but... Uh, again, it uh, questions uh, how much trust people can have in RTE as an entity. Well, absolutely, because at the back of all of this and what we're trying to achieve all, and all of this is a rebuilding of public confidence uh, in RTE and in the entity that is RTE, because public service broadcasting, as you do very well yourself as well, is clearly really important to our democracy. And democracy is very fragile at the moment. And we need... Well, RTE themselves need to demonstrate to the public that they can be trusted, that they do take their role of financial operations incredibly serious, mm. because as you well know, for years they've been coming for the, to the beg and bowl to the minister and to the government, you know, crying poor mouth. And of course, nobody uh, says that they hadn't financial constraints and all the rest. But when we see how they used 
and uh, misused and misappropriated monies within their accounts uh, with the money that they had, it, 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 it makes it very difficult for a minister uh, or a government to make a decision in long term for the future funding for it, the organisation. It's very difficult not to conclude that they didn't take uh, the responsibility that they have when it comes to spending public money or, or, or money, uh, money that at least uh, comes to them uh, in part from public funding. Uh, because how could anybody uh, with any sense take €2 million euro or, or however much the initial investment was projected to be to invest into a sector uh, with people who had no experience of working in that sector? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I do clearly remember at the time because in a former life, Michael, I would have worked in the arts and I know how incredibly difficult it is for the performing arts to survive. And I mean, I do remember clearly a, a jaw-dropping moment within uh, our committee hearings when I did ask uh, the head of, well, it was Rory, Rory Covey at the time, you know, 2.2 million of losses uh, for an event that definitely had uh, created a dent in all the other pantos and musicals that are traditional and happen around our city centre and all around the mm. country. There was there was a lot of disquiet at the time about the competition it was creating and an unfair competition because they had the free advertising as it was seen. Yep. They had rented one of the biggest venues in Dublin city centre. There was a, a bombardment, if you like, in terms of how they put, promoted the, organ- the show itself. And as we know, they completely overshot and overestimated, number one, the number of shows that they could do, and number two, the bums on seats that they could achieve. It was a completely unachievable hmm. um, oh, it task. Was, it was going to be a loss maker. It was a loss maker before it started. Totally, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is why people are angry and uh, they've made that known by uh, their actions and not buying television licences. Uh, what about somebody uh, who doesn't want to break the law but doesn't want to be funding RTE? through the TV mm. licence. What do you say to them? Well, the government is at the moment trying to come up with a mechanism that funds public service broadcasting, not just for RTE, for stations like yourselves, LMFM, uh, our local papers as well, to find a way, because we know that the public service broadcasting is incredibly, incredibly important. We know that when you have privately funded and very expensive um news feeds and we've seen the impact that that's on, had on islands on, on continents either side of us um, particularly at election time and I really go back to this point Michael it is so crucially important we are at a very delicate time within society we're at a very de- delicate time within democracy so to go back to your point uh, the government is trying to find a way that they can share the sli- a slice of the pie evenly across various sectors around public service broadcasting. I would hope that we can get through all of these reports in a quick and timely fashion and manner that will give people an opportunity to digest all of that, but also give or an organisation, a go to each, rebuild trust with the public, that the public don't penalise other organisations like your good selves who do an incredibly important job in giving people accurate information and objective views. 
Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this uh, through your committee uh, and indeed the Public Accounts Committee. But thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Neve Smith, Finnefall TD for Cavan Monaghan, Chair of the Oireachtas Media Committee. That's where we run out of time for this week. And thank you for your time over the course of the week. Thanks too to Maggie McGuire who researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.